you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 46 is where we'll be this morning. The Bible is a declaration of who God is, His will, and His character. Uh, three more weeks, I think, in the book of Genesis, and then we're going to start right into the book of Galatians. So I'd encourage you guys to continue to, to press forward in the book of Genesis, and then we're moving on to Galatians, and we'll go through that. Um, we, we trust that the Bible is enough for us. So each week we, we're going we're gonna to go to a different passage. and We're going to be in the Scripture. So we're going to roll right from Genesis into Galatians as well. So let's ask God to, to bless our time together in His Word as we turn to Genesis 46 and 47 this morning. Father, thank You for Your people gathered together. I ask and I pray that You would equip Your saints for the work of ministry. That You would call in those who don't know You. And God, that You would be honored and glorified above all as the One who invites us into relationship and speaks to us through Your Word. Help us during this hour to listen to You well and that You would be honored in this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was about eight, nine years ago now that we moved from Oklahoma to Kentucky. We lived in Kentucky for three years. And we loaded up everything that we owned on, from, from our one-bedroom apartment that smelled like smoke. We, we loaded all that stuff up and we, we put it onto a flatbed trailer to haul across the country a 12-so hour drive to Kentucky. And that's a big deal. I don't know if you moved. We just moved not too far across town, and it felt like that was a huge deal. But moving across the country is, is an, a major event. It was very difficult to get everything to fit and work right. And we, indeed, we were going from Oklahoma City to Stillwater was our first stop before we went out. And we, we didn't even make it to, like, Crescent before we had to stop and, and readjust a few things. I mean, like... Moving is difficult, and it was, it was a very big deal. And then we go to this place where we have no family, we know no one, we, we have no known stuff there, we've never really seen anything there before, but little did we know that God, in His goodness, had, had sent people ahead. And God had, God had sent friends that we'd never met before ahead of us. A, a church that was ready to welcome us and challenge us and encourage us that we'd never heard of before was already there. So, so we saw, once we got there, even though we were alone and... and didn't know anything that God had prepared a way. And in Genesis chapter 46 and 47, Jacob is about to leave the promised land. Now he's moved a couple different times, and so he's maybe a little bit more used to it than we were, but his move into Egypt is a move that's a really big deal. He is one who is, who is moving to try to preserve his family, so he's in a crisis mode. He's trying to keep his family alive because the famine had hit the land. But he's going to uproot everything and move to a foreign land. And we know that this is even a bigger deal because of Jacob's history. It is a big deal just to get Jacob into the promised land in the first place. You might remember the history of Jacob and Esau, two sons that were battling even from the womb. And what is Jacob like when he comes out? He fits his name well. He's a deceiver. He deceives his brother out of his birthright and tricks his father into giving him the blessing. And so because of that, Esau doesn't, doesn't really like him. And, and he heard these rumors that Esau wants to kill him. And so what does he do? He leaves the promised land where he was born. He leaves his father and mother and he goes into a distant land, a land of Haran. If you've been tracking with this, you know that his time in Haran wasn't necessarily pleasant either. He fell into this guy's land and, and service whose name was Laban. Not a very good guy. One of the children's Bible calls him a scoundrel. And indeed, we found that to be true for as much as we can know. Laban is a scoundrel. He's a horrible boss. He wasn't a good father-in-law. He, he tricks Jacob into working for him for 14 years for two of his daughter's 
uh, as wives. And there's all sorts of, of problems there. Then Jacob tries to get out of there. And Laban's a continued problem as he tries to switch up the flocks and, and cheat Jacob out of what was rightfully his. And so finally when he gets released from, from Herod, from Laban, what does he do? He goes back to the promised land and who's still waiting for him? Esau. Right? So you got problem after problem. You left, you're coming back, like everything is difficult, and you finally are there. Your, your, your sons then start doing stuff. Right? They, what do they do? They go destroy a town. Dinah has this issue, like things are happening to them, and then they're doing things to other people. Like this is, this is a, a difficult situation, and Judah goes off on his own, and, and finally we've, we've had a, a few months of peace, or a few years of, of peace in the promised land where you're supposed to be, and then a famine hits. It's like this, this is all messed up and it has taken a long time to get to this point and now he's got to leave. And so this is a big deal. But here's what we've seen all along. The inside and out of the promised land, when he was in the promised land, when he left the promised land the first time, now as he's going out again the second time, every single time, everywhere he's gone, God has consistently prepared the way for him. Everywhere he's gone. People that he's met, everything that's happened, God has prepared the way. He's going to do this in Egypt as well. And God assures Jacob of his presence as he goes into Egypt. And Jacob, in response to this, fixes his eyes upon God and his promises. And this is what the people of God are meant to do. They're meant to trust in this God who is with them wherever they go. And to trust in his promises, knowing that he's always faithful to every single one of them. And so even in a foreign land... As slaves or exiles, as the original readers would have known, being slaves and exiles, that the people of God, they're meant to fix their eyes upon God and on His promises, even as slaves, even in a distant land. And yet, as he gets ready to leave this land, it seems like he's taking steps in the wrong direction. And that's where we pick up in chapter 46. It says in verse 1, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now I have a map up here for you to kind of give us a, a lay of the land. Jacob is, is exiting the promised land. You can barely see Beersheba up there in the corner. That's kind of the edge of the promised land. So he, he travels down to the edge of the promised land and he worships God there. But it seems like he, he has some hesitancies. Right? He, he has some setbacks with wanting to leave that land. Like he, he stops at the edge. They're kind of like, is this the right move or is it not? And you can see where he's going to go. He's going to go into Egypt. And I kind of cut off Egypt there. They had a lot more than that. But he's going to go down into Egypt. And this is where he's going to land because they know that there's food there. And so he, he, he's crunched in his decision making. Right? He has a famine on one side of him. And, and the outside the promised land on the other side of him. And so as he, as he thinks about this, he, he seems like he's hesitating to leave as he's forced out by the famine. And I think that he has good reason to be that way. You might remember, uh, Abraham was forced to leave. He was forced to leave because of a famine. He went to Egypt. And you remember what happened in Egypt? It wasn't such a good episode for them. He gave up his wife to Pharaoh. And although he left with blessings from Pharaoh, from the king of Egypt, it still wouldn't have been an episode they were like, hey, look at what we did there. Beyond that, we had Isaac. Same kind of thing happened to him. If you look in chapter 26... Verse 1 and 2, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So lots of famines are in front of the people of God. And Isaac, he went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. This is he's, he's moving outside the promised land. And what happens? And the Lord appears to him and says, Don't go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land which I shall tell you. 
And so there's some precedent in Jacob's life to say, like, maybe I should hesitate. Maybe I shouldn't go down into Egypt. That this might not be the right move. And I think he's, he's maybe right to hesitate before he heads off into Egypt. Because he is in the promised land as the promised child with children around him. So he, he has some of the, the fulfillments that God has promised to him and his family. And so because of this hesitancy, we see verse 2. Chapter 46, that God speaks to Israel in visions of the night. And He says to him, Jacob, Jacob. And He said, Here am I. And He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid and to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God meets Jacob in his doubts, in his fears, in his hesitancies, and He meets him with these reassuring words and and personal words. Jacob, Jacob, and He calls to him by name a couple different times. God is reassuring Jacob before He leaves the promised land. And this this is a gracious God who wants to identify with His people, who wants to be known by His own, who wants to bring reassurance, who wants to bring help in the middle of of doubts and fears. He wants to meet people in the middle of that. And after all, he's, he's the one who's initiated with Jacob in the first place, right? He didn't, Jacob didn't decide, like, I, I want God. God said, I want Jacob. Jacob, I chose, he says. He, he made himself known to Jacob. Remember when Jacob left the promised land the first time, he, he, he sees this vision of, of angels going up and down this, this staircase, this ladder. God was making himself known to him. Then he delivers him time and time again, and he's prospered him. And here again, he meets him and reassures him. And at key moments along the way, he has done this over and over again. In chapter 28, he says these words to him. In verse 13, he begins, this is when he's leaving, fleeing from Esau. The Lord stands above this this vision that he sees, and he says, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, and the land in which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Even though you're leaving it, I'm going to give it to you. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's a key moment. He's on his own. He's fleeing the promised land. Things aren't going the right way, and God meets him in the middle of that. Reveals himself to him, and reassures him, and doesn't just reassure him with just promises, but also with his presence. We see it again in chapter 31. This is before Jacob goes in, back into the promised land where he knows that Esau is waiting for him. So once again, a scary moment as Esau could probably wipe him off the face of the earth. We read this in chapter 31, verse 11. Here's what stands before him as he has Laban holding him back and Esau in front of him. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mockled. And I have seen all that Laban is doing you. And I am the God of Bethel. That's where he revealed himself before. We just read. Where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And so he's, he's waffling on the decision. What do I do here? God meets him. And he reassures him with his word. He reassures him of who he is. And this is a repeated thing that God is doing. And so we're, we're starting to recognize that this isn't just something that's repeated. It's just like this is the character of God. 
This is who God is. That He's this personal God who wants to be known by His people, who wants them to be reassured with His presence and with His promises. He brings both to bear in Jacob's life. That that He's not this local deity that can only stay in the promised land because that's the land that He gave to their fathers. He can't travel off to Haran. He can't travel down to Egypt. No, this is a God who says, if you go to Haran, if you go to Egypt, I'm with you. My promises are still true. I'll be faithful to every single one of them, no matter what is going on. I'm not tied to this parcel of land. I'm not tied to just this person there. I am this omnipresent God who will bless you and be with you wherever you go. So notice we we see this repeated pattern that that once again, God is dispelling, getting rid of fears that are within His people, with His presence and with His promises. What doubts and what fears, what anxieties, what things are in your life that aren't answered resoundingly by God's Word? By His presence and by His promises. Money. Jesus tells us not to worry about that. And Jesus Himself says, look, look to the ravens. Look to flowers. Don't I take care of them? Don't I care more about those things? Doesn't my Father care more about about you than those things? He says of Himself, I'm the bread of life. We need bread to live. And He says, I'm the bread of life. That if you eat... You, you'll never hunger again. I, I'm, I'm living water. You, you need water to live, but I'm living water. And if you drink, you'll never be thirsty again. And out of you will flow living water. What about relationships? Broken, messed up, straining in your life. Jesus says that I, I'm your peace. Ephesians says Jesus Himself is our peace. Are you busy? Tired? Jesus is our rest. Depressed, hopeless, Jesus is our joy. Gloomy forecasts for the future for you. Dark things on the horizon coming. You feel like something's going to overwhelm you. We're co-heirs with the risen Christ. And more than all those beautiful promises, here's what we have. God gives us His presence. He says that He's with us. As, as a body, He says this specifically, that He's with us. As we gather together. That He's with us as a body. But he, He's with me. He's with you individually as well. He's with us. Like He's in us. The very presence of God dwells in us. Amen. And He never leaves. And the presence of God is consistently used in the Scripture to push back the fear like light pushing back the darkness. Psalm 23 says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like I'm, I'm going to be okay because God is with me. Isaiah 43, 5 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I'm with you. Matthew 28, 20. What does He assure His disciples right before He's raised? He says, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. I love this quote from one author who says this, that the only thing that can be better than having Jesus with you beside you would be having Jesus within you, wherever you are and wherever you go. And that is what we have. Those of us who are united to Christ. If you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. So now all of a sudden, He's not just by you, He's in you. So no matter where you go and what's going on, He is with you. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asks the Corinthians a question. Do you not know? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Spirit? You're, you're a walking tabernacle. Like God is within you. 
my, my kids can do a lot of stuff on their own now. They're getting older. They, they don't need my help doing lots of things. But, but still, often they want it. You know, so I'm like, you don't need help going to the bathroom. You can do that on your own. But they're like, yeah, you need to come. They don't. And often, I will say stuff like that. I'll kind of, oh man, okay, I, I guess I will go with you. But do you see how far God is from that kind of attitude toward us? doesn't come to Jacob and say, well, I guess I'll go with you since you're going to Egypt. No, he, he meets Jacob and he reassures Jacob. He had visions in the night. Like Jacob didn't conjure this up. God came in the middle of this. He came to reassure him. God is doing this. He, he wants to reassure us. He wants to identify with us. He wants us to be bold in our faith because he says, I, I'm going to be faithful to all my promises. I'll, I'll take you down to Egypt. You're going to be fine there. And then I'm going to let Joseph close your hands and you're going to have all that I promised you in the beginning and I will be with you. I'm going down with you myself. And so he despairs all these anxieties and fears that we have with his promises and with his presence. He's putting on display his faithfulness saying, you can go down to Egypt and why don't you just see if I don't fulfill every single thing that I've always promised you. Amen. He wants us to know that He's with us and that He's always going to be with us. And so He repeats it over and over again in the Scripture so that we wouldn't miss it. And I'm thankful for it. And the presence and the promises of God are, are meant to, to reassure us and push us forward. Propelling us onward as we go and on our lives. And, and they did the same for Jacob. He's going to Egypt. He needs reassurance. He needs help moving forward. He's already pretty old. He may not make it. But God reassures him. He reassures him he's making the right move. And as he sets off to Egypt, he goes off with his sons. And so, verse 5, Jacob sets off from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons... And his son's sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters. And all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. In other words, like he's all in. Like, there's not any part that's left behind. It's everything. Everything is going. They're uprooting everything and we're going. And indeed, God had blessed him and brought many blessings into his life and been faithful to the promises that he'd given to his father Abraham that he has offspring and possessions and he was in the land. There's lots of fulfillment in that. And we see all this fulfillment in this list of names. Now, I think in Genesis, you might be... Relieved that I think this is the last list of names that we'll have to go through. I'll do my best once again for you. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came to Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohah, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of the Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Chapter 38. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Huva, Yob, and Shimron. And the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padamaram. Together with his daughter Dinah, altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphian, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Erolai, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel, the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob sixteen persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, 
And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bekor, Ashbel, Gerza, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. Next baby dedication. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. And the son of Dan, Hushim, the son of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, Shelem. These are the sons of Billah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. Seems like there's some weird math there, but the end, like we're kind of adding in Jacob and Joseph and we're counting them, and seventy. The idea is there's this full number. This is completion that God has done a lot to bring this about in Jacob's life, that they could leave the promised land. There's a full number. Think about, think about all that God has done to bring them up to the point of seventy total. I mean, this is a big deal. And so here we are with, with all this offspring. Many lives are here and they're all hanging in the balance because of this famine. And so when, when Joseph was sent ahead, he was sent ahead for more than just saving a few. Like he's saving 70 people and on down from them. He's saving generations. And it, and it also provides now that Joseph is there and providing for this family. It provides an opportunity for this father and this long lost son to be reunited in a family that's been reconciled together. And this is like the climactic moment that we've been waiting for, where Jacob and Joseph finally get to see each other. Verse 28 says that he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. Goshen, you remember, is not where Joseph would have been. Like he had to go out to them. And the anticipated moment finally arrives. And Joseph is so anticipating this, so excited about this, that he can't hold back and he can't sit there and wait. Like He runs to him. He goes after him. He hitches up his own chariot and he goes after his father to meet him ahead of it. You could almost see like the scene with the, the prodigal father and the prodigal son. Right? Only it's, it's, it's like you have this father in this story of the prodigal son. He's this prodigal father who does weird things like watching for his son who's been gone for a long time. And then he runs to him in a place. And I think maybe we should keep this going in our society. Like grown men didn't run in that society. You don't run. You look weird. And maybe now, like, maybe we should keep that going. Like, stop. Maybe not run. But he does this weird thing to run to his son and meet him because he's so excited that his son has finally returned. And here you see almost the opposite. Now the son is doing something strange for a ruler of the land. Now you don't let people, you, you don't go to people, you let them come to you. you. You don't go to them. You don't go out of your throne, your place. No, he goes to him. He's excited to see his father. He runs to him. He goes to him in his chariot. It's been at least 20 years, probably 22, 23 years since Jacob and Joseph have, find, have seen each other. And finally, after all that they've been through, after Joseph was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, in Potiphar's house, in prison, out of prison, dealing with plenty, dealing with famine, finally, the moment has arrived where they are reunited once again. And the ever teary-eyed Joseph weeps again. Like we could have seen this coming, right? You're going to weep, aren't you? And it says for a good while, which I tried to find, like, somebody give me some, what's a good while? Are we talking like 
hours here? Are we what minutes? I, what's a good? I couldn't find it, so he weeps a good while. We'll leave it ambiguous. And his father responds in verse thirty. He says back to him, "Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive." That sounds kind of like, "Man, I've seen you now. I want to die." Like, no, he's just, he's happy now. Like, he's satisfied now. I can finally die in peace. We can compare that to chapter thirty-seven, and I think you'll get a little bit more the full understanding of how. Uh, at peace he is. In chapter 37, at the end, this is when he finds out that Joseph had been sold, or actually what he thinks is is killed. He says in chapter 37, uh, verse 35, he says, No, I shall go down to Sheol, I shall die, and I shall go down to my son mourning. In other words, he's, he's not happy about this. Like death and mourning. And I, Now he says, I want to die. Like I can die. Because I'm at peace. Because I've finally seen my son. So now he can, he can happily accept death rather than going down in mourning. So, so here's where we're at now. The, the question is going to turn from how's the, how's the meeting going to go? And we, we kind of guess that. Like it's going to be good and then Joseph's probably going to cry. But now what's going to happen? Like what are they going to do now that all these people with all of their possessions are in the land of Egypt? Are, are they going to be able to have a peaceful life? Is Pharaoh going to welcome them in? And that's where the questions turn. That's where Joseph turns his attention at the end of chapter 46, verse 31. Joseph says to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." Now Joseph has been thinking this out. He's been working out in his mind some ongoing protection, some ongoing provision for his family. And he's, he's a wise man, and so here's what he comes up with. Like, I'm going to try to get you this certain land so that you can be apart from the people of Egypt. So he, he hatches this plan to provide for them. Here's a land where you can be shepherds, you can live your way of life, but you can also be provided for, and I can take care of you and protect you. And so he says, here's what you need to tell him. That you're not a threat, basically. They didn't come to be a threat. Politically, they're not coming in, they're not swarming in to take over the throne or, or to pose some political problems with Joseph as kind of the prince of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. Occupationally, he says, we're not, we're not a threat. Like, you're shepherds, that's an abomination to the Egyptians. So even if they did do that job, they didn't like it. So you're not occupationally a threat socially. You're not trying to climb the ladder and get some sort of status. You want to live kind of in a, a distant area where, where the, the central area wouldn't be. Like it, you, You're not a threat. And, and Goshen allows for all of that. They can, they can be out in the land of Goshen without being a threat. They can kind of live separately the way they want to, which is a good thing for the people of God because they're going to live a little bit differently than the people who aren't trusting in and following God. They can obey Joseph's advice and they can not be in a place where they're, they're succumbing to the temptations of Egypt. This is important for the people of God. They're not going to be tempted with intermarriage. They're kind of out in rural areas. They're on their own, in a sense. And Goshen allows for all of this. So, so Joseph is doing some wise thinking to prepare the way for them. But it all depends on, jo- jo- on Pharaoh welcoming Joseph and his family in. And that's where we turn in chapter 47. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers were with their flocks and their herds, and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men, and he presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, as they, 
notice more heart change. They're, they're listening to their brother Joseph doing what he has told them to do. We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land, and let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among you, put them in charge of my livestock. And so this is going better than they thought. The, the, the brothers have shown some change. They're listening to Joseph. They're, they're asking permission. They're humble in how they're doing this as they speak to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh grants their request and even says, live in the best land. And if you've got some people that are good at this, like, put them in charge of my stuff. And so God is blessing them and, and is prepared a way for them for all this to happen. And then he wants to... Talk to the father of Jacob. So verse 7, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and he stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. How old are you? You know, 130. Few and evil have been my days. Few and evil? Like 130 is old for us. Obviously, it was a little different then. But, but his father, Abraham, was 175. That'd be his grandfather. His father, Isaac, was 180. And so 130 compared to those, like, I, they're few. But what about evil? Have they been evil? And we've traveled through Jacob's life enough to know that he, he recognizes the difficulty of his years. I mean, he has not had peace for a moment. And when he finally got in the promised land, what happens? A famine comes, and he loses his son, and all these things are going on. And so, yes, few and evil have been his days. But notice what the, the son of Abraham is doing in this other nation with a foreign ruler. He's blessing him. Blessing him. Fulfillment of what God said. You're going to bless nations. A child's going to come He's going to bless even some nations. They've already done that in a sense by sending Joseph on ahead who's kept all of that nation alive and indeed many nations. But now, here they are blessing Pharaoh directly. God has fulfilled and done a lot in Jacob's life, in the offspring of Abraham's life. And so they settle in the land. Verse 11 and 12. That Joseph settles his father and his brothers in the lands, and he gave them possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. And so their meeting in Egypt is, is met with favor from Pharaoh and in the land, and now they, they, are, they are there, settled in. And, and at this point on, we're going to see this contrast between the people of God and where they're at and the Egyptians and where they're at. And so as they settle in, the famine rages on. You remember, it was going to be at least five more years, and it hits the people of Egypt very hard. Verse 13, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. 
And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. And so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them. And the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone, did not become Pharaoh's. Here you have Joseph working to preserve the people of Egypt, working to preserve nations as the famine presses down on them. And he keeps them alive at the cost of their livestock, their land, and even their own service in their lives. They, they, and they don't come and complain. They, they say, here's what we want to offer. We don't have any money. We only have our land and our lives. So we'll offer that up to you if you'll just keep us alive. And this is what Joseph offers. Says, All right, we'll do that. We will keep you alive and you can keep your, your sowing and all these things. Keep it going, but we will take a portion of that. And so here's what's going on is that they, they can keep 80. Joseph and then Pharaoh are going to keep 20. But they're not grumbling about this. Joseph saved them. They're thankful that they have salvation, that they can live, they survive, and that Joseph has provided for them for a future. So this sounds like a heavy tax. Their lives are kept because Joseph acts in this way. Indeed, he provides for them a future because they're willing to give these things up in order to have from Pharaoh. But the land of the priests wasn't taken. The priests were the exception. They, they were the ones that was... They're not going to mess with them. We're not taxing them. They get their land. That's from Pharaoh. They have their own allowance. But there's one more group, interestingly enough, who doesn't seem to have struggles with this, this tax. See verse 27. Here's the second group. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. So here we're going to have a contrast between the, the people of Egypt and the people of Israel who are in Egypt. The, the people of Egypt, or the, the Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen and they gained possessions in it and they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the, the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. So Israel seems to be relatively like independent in the land of Goshen and they seem to be doing, doing well there. They're prospering. He's multiplying them greatly. They're, they're being blessed. They're fruitful in their land. And so good job, Joseph. Like you've, you've preserved the people of Egypt and you've protected for and provided for the people of God in the land of Egypt. And so God, once again, we're seeing more and more wisdom from God as He knew what He's doing to send Joseph ahead of them. So Israel stands in this striking contrast to the Egyptians. They're gaining possessions. They're fruitful in the land. They're multiplying. Isn't this exactly what God just promised Jacob? 
We don't want to skip over even small fulfillments of God's promises. God had promised this. When you go to Egypt, I'm going to do good things there. Here's a partial fulfillment of that. That God is being faithful to His promises. He would promised it just before He left, and now He's delivering. And in response to this, God doing this in His life, Israel, that is Jacob, finally responds again. And that's where we end in verse 29 through 31. It says this, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. And he answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob, it seems like, from chapter 37 on, when he speaks, it seems like he often has death on his lips. You might have known somebody like that. It seems like I, I have some relatives around me that they're getting older and they're just saying over and over, I'm just going to die, I'm going to die. And that's what Jacob keeps saying over and over. He talks about his death often. It's on his lips, but he makes a request. Because when death is on his mind, he, he's trying to get things the way he wants them. And he says this, Bury me with my fathers. You may remember that, that Abraham, earlier on in Genesis chapter 23, he, he made his first kind of legal and official claim in the promised land by buying a cave to bury his wife, Sarah. That was the first kind of claim, legal claim that was made in the promised land. Even though God had promised it to them, Abraham in his, in his dying days, towards the end of his life, buys a cave, sinking down his roots of his family and his lives down deep into the land, buys a cave in the promised land. He traveled all over. He'd seen lots, but God had promised him a specific land. And so he says, I'm going to buy a cave in that land to bury the dead. Abraham, it says in Hebrews, was acting in faith. Looking forward, not to just something that around him now, but he was looking forward to a better city. Something that God would provide him. And he buys this land in, in response to what God had promised to him. So Sarah and Abraham were both buried in that cave. And so this is what... Uh, Jacob is referencing when he says, bury me there. And, and what Israel is doing, what Jacob is doing when he says, when he makes this request, is he's displaying his faith. Bury me there. And actually he says, I'll do it. He says, no, swear to me that you'll do it. I'm serious about this. I, I want this to be done. Like he is displaying his possession. He has possessions in the land. He's doing fine in Egypt. He doesn't need to go. And in fact, they probably would have done all the Egyptian embalming. They probably would have given him a great death. He's old. They, they like that. And of course, Pharaoh would want to talk to him. How old are you? Like there's some intrigue there. He could have had the best in the land. Joseph could have provided the greatest in Egypt for him. He was blessed there. He was being fruitful there. But he says, nope, I don't want to be buried there. So some of God's promises are being fulfilled right there in Egypt. And, and Jacob's doing well. And so shouldn't he be satisfied? Shouldn't he just be okay with this? Like just be buried in Egypt. Like I'm keeping your old bones alive. Like why are you whining about where you're going to be buried? But where's his heart set? Where is he fixing his eyes? He's not setting his heart on Goshen. Probably a good land. He's not setting his trust or his hope in Egypt. He's following in the footsteps of his father Abraham. He's looking forward to a better country. He's not satisfied with all the provision, all the protection, all the fruitfulness that he's had in Egypt. No, he trusts in God. He trusts in God's word. That His promises are going to be fulfilled. That He promises this land. So I want to go there. 
One commentator says this, that the request of the patriarchs to be buried in the land with their fathers brings to the fore their trust in the faithfulness of God to His Word. And henceforth, a a key symbol of Israel's faith and the promises of God is the bones of the faithful seed that are buried in the promised land. You see this again from Joseph when he says, Take my bones out of Egypt. This is not where I need to be. The request of the burial in the promised land wasn't merely just a preference on sight. It seems like maybe the promised land has more flowers around the grave, so let's go there. It wasn't because he thought that, that something was better there, but it's because he trusted in God and in His Word. And in a foreign land, as the father of a fledgling embryonic nation, as a recipient of the promises of God, he doesn't put his trust in the land. He doesn't put his trust and his hope in the things around him and his possessions and his fruitfulness. No, he, he, he's captivated instead, not by, by those things, but by God Himself and His Word. He has his eyes set on a better country, on God, and on God's promises. In other words, Jacob is now in Egypt, but he's not of Egypt. And future Israelites needed this faithful example. They're going to struggle in Canaan to not intermarry and be of those people. Be in that land, don't be of those people in that land. They were going to go into exile and they are going to be exhorted over and over again. Be faithful to your God and to His promises. And don't the people of God need this example now? Those who are in Christ are those who do not put their trust in their possessions. They don't put their trust in their land. They do not put their trust in their blessings or their offspring. They put their trust in God. Our trust is ultimately in the offspring of Abraham. Jesus Christ Himself, who came to make blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And in Christ, we're recipients of all the promises of God. All of them find their yes in Him. We are co-heirs with Christ because of what He has done. And we live, as Jacob lived, as, as sojourners in the land. Exiles, aliens. We don't belong here. This isn't our place. We're to be there, but not of that place. In the world, not of the world. No, we're to set our eyes on a better country. We're to place our trust in a better king. We're to put our, our hope in something greater than a kingdom that's here and now. We're to set it onward. And as we sojourn on this earth, we can be reassured as Jacob was. And I want to be buried there because I know God's going to fulfill His promises. We can be reassured that God is going to fulfill every single one of His promises. That He's with us. That He's not going to leave us. That He's going to be with us even to the end of the age is what He says. He's going to be faithful to every one of His promises. Amen. And as the people of God gather together, we have a, a sacred symbol to remember this. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that God has been faithful to every single one of His promises. And we're, we're saying that God will be faithful. Christ will return and bring us to that better country that we've been waiting for, a new heavens and new earth all along. We're reminded in this meal that our promised land awaits us. But that because, we're, because of the work of Christ, His body broken, His blood poured out, because of our faith in Him, we're now united with Christ, and we know that that promised land is to come. So this is what we do in this meal. We're reminded of all the promises of God. We're reminded of God's faithfulness. We're reminded of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we're reminded that there's a promised land coming soon. And so we, we encourage you guys, as a family, as believers, if you're in Christ... 
Come and take this meal. Be reassured of all those promises of God. Let this be a a living sermon of, of God saying, I've been faithful and I will be faithful. Come. If you're not a believer, we encourage you, don't take this meal. It's not for you. Take Jesus instead. He's the bread of life. He's living water. We want you to know what that means before you take this bread and this juice. And so if you don't know Jesus, take Him. And if you don't know what that means, ask us. We'd love to tell you. But if you're a believer, come and take. And we've even got it to where we're even more unified and that it's all gluten-free, so you don't even have to worry about that now. So come and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded of who you are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your Word that reminds us and reassures us over and over again of what You've promised us and that You're with us. God, we we know that as the people of God gathered together doing what You have commanded us to do and taking the Lord's Supper, that You are especially with us. Help that encourage our hearts and and our souls during this time. God, we love You. Be honored as we take this meal. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.